welcome to um, the library's last read aloud for fall quarter 2009. We're going to conclude our series this quarter with Melanie McGurr and a few of her students. Melanie works in the library's um, cataloging department and she and her students are going to share a collection of readings uh, in honor of Jane Austen. Melanie? Thank you very much. I don't want to get too close to this. Um, we're going <laughs> to... I don't want to be screaming at everyone. Um, I just want to welcome you all to the uh, Read Aloud today. And we got as close to Jane Austen's birthday as we could. Um, her birthday is in December. Let me get the right date here for you. Um, December 16th. And this is cl as close as we could get. So I kind of wanted to make it a, f a festival slash honoring of Jane Austen. So... Um, I signed up to do this before I started teaching the class, so I kind of sprung it on my students. <laughs> hey, we have a read aloud. Do you want to come? Um, so we had a lot of trouble with scheduling conflicts and stuff, but we do have a, a student here now, and we'll have one a little bit later. Um, Teresia Bradford is here. She's a first-year student, and she's going to read for us, and Katie Colborn will be coming later. Um, and I have one of my colleagues from the library here, Melanie Schlosser, and um, she's the uh, assistant professor and metadata librarian at... Um, in technical services at the library, so she volunteered to come help me out. Also, <laughs> we we had some students who were ha who had conflicts with classes and things like that who were interested in participating but couldn't. So, but we still have um, some some fun stuff to read uh, for you today. Uh, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the freshman seminar program. Uh, I don't know how many of you uh, have participated in a freshman seminar or have heard about it before, but freshman seminars are smaller classes for first year students. Um, I think the cap is 18. I'm not sure. I think Jessica was going to try to come today, but I don't see her around. I think the cap for the, the class is 18 students. So you have a small environment where students can meet with faculty in a, in a small class, and it's a chance to get to know your fellow students and also, um, you know, get to know a faculty member as well. And it's very discussion-based, uh, our classes at least, and I think that most of them are. I brought some examples of uh, things, that, uh, freshman seminars that are being taught in the winter, um, the program was started in 2003, and it's been going strong since, and every quarter I think there are more seminars added. Uh, the fall quarter, I think, is the most popular quarter, quarter for students. Um, a wide variety of topics and disciplines, and some of the things for um, the winter quarter is a class called Zombies, Chainsaws, and Screams, Horror, Films, and Culture, which sounds fun, from National Treasures to the Da Vinci Code, Freemasons, Fact, and Fiction, Exploring the Music of Johnny Cash through a Sociological Perspective, I thought it sounded fun to me. And the British Country House, a social, economic, architectural, and cultural history. I teach that one, so I'm doing a little PR. So, <laughs> but there's all sorts of fun freshman seminars um, being taught uh, here at the university. And uh, I thought I would use this chance to kind of PR those also as well. Then, then uh, you know, we're talking about Jane Austen, but I thought I'd give the freshman seminar uh, program a boost. Uh, the freshman seminar that this uh, read aloud grew out of was uh, a mine that's called Darcy Pemberley and 10,000 Pounds and we're discussing Pride and Prejudice throughout this quarter and we really just discuss everything <laughs> economics, fashion, characters um, trying to think of some of the other things we've uh, good and evil in the novel if there really are good you know truly good characters or truly evil characters that was a good class discussion we also take a look at the movies, uh, the different theatrical releases of Pride and Prejudice, 
and we have fun with that. We look at certain scenes. Um, we just started watching Bride and Prejudice, which is a Bollywood version of Pride and Prejudice that we, uh, we started watching it last week. A lot of students hadn't seen that yet, so that's the one full movie we'll watch in the class, but mostly we, um, we, we just look at scenes that we're discussing that day. Uh, the class has a, has a penchant for the 2005 version uh, with Matthew McFadden, so I kind of don't blame them. <laughs> um, but I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Jane Austen really quick. Um, for those of you who don't know that much about her life, um, she was born on December 16th in 1775 and de- uh, died July 18th in 1817. So she died when she was 41 years old. And um, you know, to us, that's certainly not uh, uh, a long life. Uh, but she was very productive in that short life. Um, her book, Sense and Sensibility, was published in 1811, Pride and Prejudice in 1813. Mansfield Park in 1814, Emma in 1816, and um, uh, after her death, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion were published in 1818. Uh, she had six brothers and one sister, Cassandra, who she had a really close relationship with. And for most of her life, she lived in a very retired manner. Um, she first in her father's parsonage, uh, and later uh, at a cottage that her brother on her brother's estate. Um, and I think she, for what most biographers seemed to think she preferred this retired lifestyle. She was more productive in this lifestyle. Um, that doesn't mean she didn't have excitement in her life at all. It just means that, you know, she was more productive in this way. Um, well, her father died in 1805, and it left her and her mother and sister um, in a very precarious economic state. Um, if you've read Sense and Sensibility, um, it, she didn't come from the sort of money that the, uh, the uh, Dashwood sisters came from, but it was the same sort of idea that this, the... The, their mother and her sister Cassandra and herself had to make do on much, much less than they were used to. And their brothers tried to help, but it still wasn't easy. Um, and she, she wrote steadily until her death in 1817. So I just wanted to give you a little background on Jane Austen. And I wanted to see if anybody wanted to do some audience participation before we start reading. Anybody want to? I just wanted to ask everyone what their favorite Jane Austen book was and why. Anybody have anybody want to uh, volunteer that information? Or everyone's like, "Who's Jane Austen? What are we doing here?" Yeah, Pam. Persuasion a lot. Persuasion? What? What? Why? You don't know? It's okay if you don't know why. Persuasion's my favorite too. Yeah. When I was when I was a, like when I was 18 or 19, Pride and Prejudice was my favorite. But as I grow older, Persuasion is definitely my favorite. What about you, Melon? Do you have a favorite? Pride and Prejudice, but Persuasion's up there. Yeah. <laughs> you can see the there's a trend here. But is yours your favorite Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. It's okay. It's really good. Yeah. And I think a couple students in our class surprised me by saying Sense and Sensibility was their favorite. Um, that kind of shocked me. I thought, you know, because I, I figured everyone was in the Pride and Prejudice class, maybe that was their, you know, their thing. But anybody else want to volunteer anything? What favorites? No one's going to say Mansfield Park either, probably. But people have problems with Mansfield Park <laughs> and the heroine there. But um, I just wanted to see uh, what other people oops, thought or felt. But, yeah, I think persuasion is definitely – that's what I'll be reading out of um, later. But I think everybody, you know, who, who is a Jainite, right, has a favorite and a, and a reason why. <laughs> sometimes it can be the hero. Sometimes it can be the heroine. Um, it just depends. Um, Let's see where I am on my list here. We had another reader who um, unfortunately got sick, so she had to leave. But I'm going to read something that she was interested in reading. 
And oh wait, I'm gonna have Teresa read first. She's gonna read from. You're like, you want me? To, you want me to go ahead first? Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> That's fine. Um, this is a, a pretty new, new book. It's called A Truth Universally Acknowledged, and it's uh, 33 great writers on why we read Jane Austen. Right. So this is a pretty, and we have a copy here in Thompson. Somebody has it checked out, but we do have a copy uh, in the Ohio State system. And there's. Uh, a lot of good, interesting authors in here, like Eudora Weltley, um, Martin Amos, trying to see some of the other ones, Faye Weldon, uh, so some famous names, C.S. Lewis, and Anna Quinlan, Virginia Woolf, so there's some good ones in here. But I wanted to read one that was um, kind of short, right, so we, so we can get to the actual Jane Austen stuff, <laughs> but also... Um, one that kind of talked overall about Jane Austen. A lot of them talk about specific books, but I wanted to concentrate on one that talked about Jane Austen herself. And this one's by Rebecca Mead, and it's Six Reasons to Read Jane Austen. And she's, her first reason is we, because we can't invite her to dinner even though we'd like to. There exists, unfortunately enough, no league table of results for the popular parlor game of Name Your Fantasy Dinner Party Guests in which participants compile a list of famous figures, living or dead, with whom it would be most fun to spend an evening. But if there were, Jane Austen would likely rank high on it. We imagine her sandwiched at the table between Oscar Wilde on her left and William Shakespeare on her right, asking Cleopatra to pass the salt. There are some writers whose company one can't help suspecting might be less enjoyable than their literary works. Edgar Allan Poe, maybe, or Philip Larkin. But Austen, as the thinking goes, would make excellent company. We imagine her often acute observations to, on her fellow guests, sotto voce, of the sort we know she saved up for her letters to her sister Cassandra, as she wrote after dining with one of her Hampshire neighbors, Mrs. Powlett was at both once expensively and nakedly dressed. We have had the satisfaction of esteeming her, estimating her lace and muslin. And the second reason she says she wants to uh, people read Jane Austen is because Jane Austen probably wouldn't want to come to dinner with you. <laughs> Of course, though, it's entirely possible, let's admit it, entirely likely, that Austin would relish the prospect of dining with us far less than we would relish the prospect of dining with her. We are to have a tiny party here tonight, she wrote Cassandra on another occasion. I hate tiny parties. They force one into constant exertion. Devoted readers would not wish to force Jane Austen into anything, particularly not an activity that might interfere with her writerly concentration. Although she regularly hid her pages under a blotting pad when a visitor called, Great literary works coming second to small social graces. Still, it wouldn't do to irritate her. As Lord David Cecil wrote more than 70 years ago, I should be seriously upset. I should worry for weeks and weeks if I incurred the disapproval of Jane Austen. A third reason is because the great recognized her greatness. Richard Sheridan, the most successful playwright of Austen's age, called Pride and Prejudice one of the cleverest things he had ever read. Sir Walter Scott, the preeminent novelist of his day, confided to his diary in 1825 that Austen had a talent for describing the involvements and feelings of characters of ordinary life, which is to me the most wonderful I have ever met with. When Marian Evans was readying herself to mentally try her hand for the first time in fiction, she would become George Eliot, the greatest novelist of the Victorian era. She undertook a trip to the Sicily Isles off the tip of Cornwall with her common-law husband, George Lewes. Um, Let's see. What did the Lewes read aloud to each other every evening in their lodgings upon the island of St. Mary's? The novels of Jane Austen. And, they, and she gives a number of other, some of the other reasons because, but I, I think one of my favorite is the last one is um, why we like to read Jane Austen is because it's possible to read everything she wrote. 
six completed novels, three unfinished ones, three volumes of juvenilia, and some poems and letters. That's it. We may well wish there were more. We long to read those letters burned by her survivors, whose under, whose, those unwritten novels of her unlived middle age and later years. But still, there's something satisfyingly manageable about the Austin oeuvre compared with, say, the work of Trollope, who produced 47 novels, enough to take a busy reader several lifetimes to complete. One of the greatest rewards of reading Jane Austen, by contrast, is that having done so, we get to reread Jane Austen on later occasions. No one knew this better than the author, who liked to read her manuscript aloud to family as she was working on it, doubtless testing its effectiveness and tinkering with it thereafter. Even after publication, a point at which many authors withdraw from their work with all its final, now now, uh, uneditable flaws, she liked to revisit her creations. When Pride and Prejudice finally appeared in print, she read chapters aloud to one Miss Ben, an impoverished gentlewoman neighbor. She really does seem to admire Elizabeth, Austin wrote afterward in a letter to Cassandra. I must confess that I think her a delightful creature. Uh, Excuse me. I think her as delightful a creature as ever appeared in print. Why do we read Jane Austen? Because Jane Austen read Jane Austen and knew it was close to perfection, as any of us can hope for. So that's a little bit of... uh, um, what that author thinks, why we read Jane Austen, and I, we, we all have our different <laughs> different reasons, but that comes the last one comes pretty close, right? That she knew she she even read herself; it was so good. So, and so uh, her letters are great. If you've never read her letters, if you've read a lot of her novels, but you never let, read her personal letters, they're they're really great reads too. She had a great relationship with her sister. Um, they wrote back and forth. They were separated often and wrote back and forth often, and they're very fun, chatty, um, sometimes. Uh, I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it, catty <laughs> letters, um, because she could be very satirical and very uh, cutting at times. So, uh, but she, she, this is a very sweet letter that you uh, that you have to her niece, Fanny. Right? You ready? <laughs> so, um, I decided to read um, one of Jane Austen's letters to Fanny Knight, her niece, and um, I thought a letter would be nice just because um, it's Jane Austen's birthday. So, I mean, it's nice to kind of get, like, an inside scoop on, like, her life itself. I mean, since it is her birthday. Um, she, um, like Melanie was saying, she, her sister burned a lot of her letters, like the, like the good ones. <laughs> like the, yeah, the ones that you'd actually want to read. But um, they still had some kind of nice ones. Um, the, the man who wrote the introduction for this set of Jane Austen's letters he said, um, the letters are like most letters, occasional, unstudied, and inconsequent. Their themes are accidental, their bulk, that of quarter sheet. As a series, though, they have connection. They have no coherence, they straggle over 20 years, and lack a plot. Their details, therefore, unlike the details of Emma, are not the ingredients or the embellishments of a rounded composition. If they can be called works of art... They are so only because, as the writer reminds us, an artist cannot do anything slovenly. But as fragments, fragments of observation, of characterization, of criticism, they are in the same class as the material of the novels. And in some respects, they have a wider range. Just a little something on the letters, because some people don't like them, which is odd. It's like you like her books, but you don't like her. It's kind of awkward. Um... She said, um, Cassandra, her sister, said on Fanny Knight to Fanny Knight in a letter, My dearest Fanny, I have just read your letter for the third time, and thank you most sincerely for every kind expression to myself, and still more warmly for your praise of her, who I believe was better known to you than to any human being beside myself. 
that was just Cassandra to Fanny on Jane after her death. Mm -hmm. Um, Jane Austen to Fanny Knight and this was written well either written or sent um, like kind of like today that's why I kind of chose this one because it was Friday the 18th to Sunday the 20th of November yeah 1814 so it was a little while ago but I mean you know it's close enough Um, this letter was Jane just talking about like giving love advice kind of to Fanny which is kind of interesting she does that a lot um Dear Fanny, I feel quite as doubtful as you could be my dearest Fanny as to when my letter may be finished, for I can command very little quiet time at present. But yet I must begin, for I know you will be glad to hear as soon as possible, and I really am impatient myself to be writing something on so very interesting a subject, though I have no hope of writing anything to the purpose. I shall do very little more, I dare say, than say over again what you have said before. (laughs) I was certainly a good deal surprised at first as I had no suspicion of any change in your feelings, and I have no scruple in saying that you cannot be in love. My dear Fanny, I am ready to laugh at the idea, and yet it is no laughing matter to have had you so mistaken as to your own feelings. And with all my heart, I wish I had cautioned you on that point when first you spoke to me. But though I did not think you then so much in love as you thought yourself, I did consider you as being attached in a degree, quite sufficiently for happiness, as I had no doubt it would increase with opportunity. And from the time of our being in London together, I thought you really very much in love. But you certainly are not at all. There is no concealing it. What strange creatures we are. It seems as if your being secure of him, as you say yourself, had made you indifferent. There was little of disgust, I suspect, as the races, and I do not wonder at it. His expressions, then, would not do for one who had rather more acuteness penetration and taste than love which was your case and yet after all I am surprised that the change in your feelings should be so great he is just what he ever was only more evidently and uniformly devoted to you this is all the difference how shall we account for it my dearest Fanny I am writing what will not be of the smallest use to you I am feeling differently every moment and shall not be able to suggest a single thing that can assist your mind I could lament in one sentence and laugh in the next, but as to opinion or counsel, I am sure none will be omitted, extracted worth having from this letter. I read yours through the very even the very evening I received it, getting away by myself. I could not bear to leave off when I had once begun. I was full of curiosity and concern. Luckily, your aunt C dined at the other house, where therefore I had not to maneuver away from her. And as to anybody else, I do not care. Poor Mr. J.P. Oh, dear Fanny, your mistake has been one that thousands of women fall into. He was the first young man who attached himself to you. That was the charm, and most powerful it is. Among the multitudes, however, that make the same mistake with yourself, there can be few indeed who have so little reason to regret it. His character and his attachment leave you nothing to be ashamed of. Upon the whole, what is to be done? You certainly have encouraged him to such a point as to make him feel almost secure of you. You have no inclination for any other person. His situation in life, family, friends, and above all his character, his uncommonly amiable mind, strict principles, just notions, good habits, all that you know so well have to value, all that really is of the first importance. Everything of this nature pleads his cause most strongly. 
You have no doubt of his having superior abilities. He has proved it at the university. He is, I dare say, such a scholar as your agreeable idle brothers would ill bear a comparison with. Oh, my dear Fanny, the more I write about him, the warmer my feelings become. The more strongly I feel the sterling worth of such a young man and the desirableness of your growing in love with him again. I recommend this most thoroughly. There are such things in the world, perhaps, one in a thousand as the creature you and I should think perfection, where grace and spirit are united to worth, where the manners are equal to the heart and understanding. But such a person may not come in your way, or if he does, he may not be the eldest son of a man of fortune, (laughs) the brother of your particular friend and belonging to your own county. Think of all this, Fanny. Mr. J.P. has a has advantages which do not often meet in one person. His only fault, indeed, seems modesty. If he were less modest, he would be more agreeable, speak louder, and look imprudenter. And is it not a fine character of which modesty is the only defect? I have no doubt that he will get more lively and more like yourself as he is more with you. He will catch your ways if he belongs to you. And as to there being any objections from his goodness, from the danger of his being even evangelical, I cannot admit that. I may by no means convince that we ought not all to be evangelicals, and am at least persuaded that they who are so from reason and feeling must be happiness and safest, happiest and safest. Do not be frightened from the connection by your brother having most wit. Wisdom is better than wit and in the long run will certainly have the laugh on her side. And don't be frightened by the idea of his acting more strictly up to the precepts of the New Testament than others. And now, my dear Fanny, having written so much on one side of the question, I shall turn around and entreat you not to commit yourself yourself farther and not to think of accepting him unless you really do like him. Anything is to be preferred or endured rather than marrying without affection. And if his deficiencies of manner and C&C strike you more than all his good qualities, and if you continue to think strongly of them, give him up at once. Things are now in such a state that you must resolve upon one or the other, either to allow him to go on as he has done, or whenever you are together, behave with a coldness which may convince him that he has been deceiving himself. I have no doubt of his suffering a good deal for a time, a great deal, when he feels that he must give you up. But it is no creed of mine, as you may well be aware, that such disappointments kill anybody. Your sending the music was an admirable device. It may everything ease. And I do not know how I could have accounted for the parcel otherwise. For though your dear papa most conscientiously hunted about till he found me alone in the dining parlor, your Aunt C. had seen that he had a parcel to deliver. As it is, however, I do not think anything was suspected. We have heard nothing fresh from Anna. I trust she is very comfortable in her new home. Her letters have been very sensible and satisfactory, with no parade of happiness, which I liked them the better for. I have often known young married women to write in a way I did not like in that respect. Yours very affectionately, Jane Austen. Okay. Can you guys hear me? So I'm going to read a bit from Pride and Prejudice in the first half of the book. This is a conversation between our heroine, Elizabeth Bennett, and her cousin, Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins is a clergyman of a small parish that is attached to the estate of a very, very wealthy widow. Um, He is also her father's heir, so he is going to inherit the house that she lives in and everything that is hers. 
Uh, right before this happens, he asks her mother if he can have a private audience with her. Um, she's sitting in a room with her mother and sisters. And since she is unable to keep them from leaving, she is obliged to entertain a marriage proposal from Mr. Collins. So he starts off. Believe me, my dear Miss Elizabeth, that your modesty, so far from doing you any disservice, rather adds to your other perfections. You would have been less amiable in my eyes had there not been this little unwillingness. But allow me to assure you that I have your respected mother's permission for this address. You can hardly doubt the purport of my discourse, however your natural delicacy may lead you to dissemble. My attentions have been too marked to be mistaken. Almost as soon as I entered the house, I singled you out as the companion of my future life. But before I am run away with by my feelings on this subject, perhaps it will be advisable for me to state my reasons for marrying, and moreover, for coming into Hertfordshire with the design of selecting a wife, as I certainly did. The idea of Mr. Collins, with all his solemn composure, being, a run, being run away with by his feelings, made Elizabeth so near laughing that she could not use the short pause he allowed in any attempt to stop him farther, and he continued. My reasons for marrying are, first, that I think it a right thing for every clergyman in easy circumstances, like myself, to set the example of matrimony in his parish. Secondly, that I am convinced it will add very greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, which perhaps I ought to have mentioned earlier, that it is the particular advice and recommendation of the very noble lady whom I have the honor of calling patroness. Twice has she condescended to give me her opinion, unasked, too, on this subject. And it was but the very Saturday night before I left Hunsford, between our pools at Quadrille, while Mrs. Jenkinson was arranging Mr. Berg's footstool, that she said, Mr. Collins, you must marry. A clergyman like you must marry. Choose properly. Choose a gentlewoman for my sake. And for your own, let her be an active, useful sort of person. Not brought up high, but able to make a small income go a good way. This is my advice. Find such a woman as soon as you can. Bring her to Hunsford, and I will visit her. Allow me, by the way, to observe, my fair cousin, that I do not reckon the notice and kindness of Lady Catherine de Bourgh as among the least of the advantages in my power to offer. You will find her manners beyond anything I can describe, and your wit and vivacity, I think, must be acceptable to her, especially when tempered with the silence and respect which her rank will inevitably excite. Thus much for my general intention in favor of matrimony. It remains to be told why my views were directed to Longbourn instead of my own neighborhood, where I assure you there are many amiable young women. But the fact is that being, as I am, to inherit this estate after the death of your honored father, who, however, may live many years longer, I could not satisfy myself without resolving to choose a wife from among his daughters, that the loss to them might be as little as possible when the melancholy event takes place, which, however, as I have already said, may not be for several years. This has been my motive, my fair cousin, and I flatter myself it will not sink me in your esteem. And now nothing remains for me but to assure you in the most animated language of the violence of my affection. To fortune, I am perfectly indifferent and shall make no demand of that nature on your father since I am well aware that it could not be complied with and that 1,000 pounds in the 4%, which will not be yours till after your mother's decease, is all that you may ever be entitled to. On that head, therefore, I shall be uniformly silent, and you may assure yourself that no ungenerous reproach shall ever pass my lips when we are married. It was absolutely necessary to interrupt him now. You are too hasty, sir, she cried. You forget that I have made no answer. Let me do it without farther loss of time. Accept my thanks for the compliment you are paying me. I am very sensible of the honor of your proposals, but it is impossible for me to do otherwise than decline them. I am not now to learn, replied Mr. Collins, with a formal wave of the hand, that it is usual with young ladies to reject the addresses of the man whom they secretly mean to accept when he first applies for their favor. 
and that sometimes the refusal is repeated a second or even a third time. I am therefore by no means discouraged by what you have just said, and shall hope to lead you to the altar ere long. Upon my word, sir, cried Elizabeth, your hope is rather an extraordinary one after my declaration. I do assure you that I am not one of those young ladies, if such young ladies there are, who are so daring as to risk their happiness on the chance of being asked a second time. I am perfectly serious in my refusal. You could not make me happy, and I am convinced that I am the last woman in the world who could make you so. Nay, were your friend Lady Catherine to know me, I am persuaded she would find me in every respect ill-qualified for the situation. Were it certain that Lady Catherine would think so, said Mr. Collins very gravely, but I cannot imagine that her ladyship would at all disapprove of you. And you may be certain that when I have the honor of seeing her again, I shall speak in the highest terms of your modesty, economy, and other amiable qualifications. Indeed, Mr. Collins, all praise of me will be unnecessary. You must give me leave to judge for myself and pay me the compliment of believing what I say. I wish you very happy and very rich, and by refusing your hand, do all in my power to prevent your being otherwise. In making me the offer, you must have satisfied the delicacy of your feelings with regard to my family and may take possession of Longbourn Estate whenever it falls without any self-reproach. This matter may be considered, therefore, as finally settled." And rising as she thus spoke, she would have quitted the room had not Mr. Collins thus addressed her. When I do myself the honor of speaking to you next on this subject, I shall hope to receive a more favorable answer than you have now given me. Though I am far from accusing you of cruelty at present, because I know it to be the established custom of your sex to reject a man on the first application, and perhaps you have even now said as much to encourage my suit as would be consistent with the true delicacy of the female character. Really, Mr. Collins, cried Elizabeth with some warmth, you puzzle me exceedingly. If what I have hitherto said can appear to you in the form of encouragement, I know not how to express my refusal in such a way as may convince you of its being one. You must give me leave to flatter myself, my dear cousin, that your refusal of my addresses is merely words, of course. My reasons for believing it are briefly these. It does not appear to me that my hand is unworthy your acceptance, nor that the establishment I can offer would be any other than highly desirable. My situation in life, my connections with the family of de Burgh, and my relationship to your own our circumstances highly in my favor. And you should take it into farther consideration that, in spite of your manifold attractions, it is by no means certain that another offer of marriage may ever be made you. Your portion is unhappily so small that it will in all likelihood undo the effects of your loveliness and amiable qualifications. As I must therefore conclude that you are not serious in your rejection of me, I shall choose to attribute it to your wish of increasing my love by suspense, according to the usual practice of elegant females." I do assure you, sir, that I have no pretension whatever to that kind of elegance which consists in tormenting a respectable man. I would rather be paid the compliment of being believed sincere. I thank you again and again for the honor you have done me in your proposals, but to accept them is absolutely impossible. My feelings in every respect forbid it. Can I speak plainer? Do not consider me now as an elegant female intending to plague you, but as a rational creature speaking the truth from her heart. You are uniformly charming, cried he with an air of awkward gallantry, and I am persuaded that when sanctioned by the express authority of both your excellent parents, my proposals will not fail of being acceptable. To such perseverance and willful self-deception, Elizabeth would make no reply, and immediately and in silence withdrew. Determined that if he persisted in considering her repeated refusals as flattering encouragement to apply to her father, whose negative might be uttered in such a manner as must be decisive, and whose behavior, at least, could not be mistaken for the affectation and coquetry of an elegant female. Okay. Um, a bit from Persuasion, which um, a few of us said was our favorite. Probably not as well known as Pride and Prejudice, I don't think, but, but my favorite. Um, and to set up a little bit uh, of the story, 
<clears throat> the book revolves around the heroine, Anne Elliot, um, who is older than many of other uh, Jane Austen's other heroines. Um, she is, I think, 27 at the beginning of the story, which uh, in marriageable terms is old. <laughs> that's what, that's what uh, age Charlotte Lucas is in Pride and Prejudice, and that's why she says she has to get married and accepts the comical clergyman. Um, but I won't try to give away much of the novel if you haven't read it yet. But uh, in Persuasion, Anne Elliot uh, is the daughter of Sir William Elliot, baronet, and who is very proud of his home and his name. And uh, her father, unfortunately, has fallen onto some hard times through his own excessive habits, clothing and food and things like that. So he has to leave his house. He has basically rent out his house, Kellynch Hall, and he's renting it to a um, former... Uh, semi-acquaintance of Anne's, um, the sister of a man she was once engaged to. So um, I wanted to read you a little bit about how Anne feels about this and a little history between uh, her and her former fiancé, Captain Frederick Wentworth, who she had met in 1806. Um, And this is seven or eight years later. He's coming back into her life. In 1806, Captain Frederick Wentworth was a remarkably fine young man with a great deal of intelligence, spirit, and brilliancy, and Anne, an extremely pretty girl with gentleness, modesty, taste, and feeling. Half the sum of attraction on either side might have been enough, for he had nothing to do, and she had hardly anybody to love. But the encounter of such lavish recommendations could not fail. They were gradually acquainted, and when acquainted, rapidly and deeply in love. It would have been difficult to say which had seen highest perfection in the other, or which had been the happiest, she in receiving his declarations and proposals, or he in having them accepted. A short period of exquisite felicity followed, and, but a short one, trouble soon arose, Sir Walter on being applied to, without actually withholding his consent, or saying it should never be, gave it all the negative of great astonishment, great coldness, great silence, and a professed resolution of doing nothing for his daughter. He thought it a very degrading alliance, and Lady Russell, though with more tempered and pardonable pride, received it as a most unfortunate one. Anne Elliot, with all her claims of birth, beauty, and mind, to throw herself away at 19, involve herself at 19 in an engagement with a young man who had nothing but himself to recommend him, and no hopes of attaining affluence, but in the chances of a most uncertain profession, and no connections to secure even his further rise in that profession, would be indeed a throwing away which she grieved to think of. Anne Elliot, so young, known to so few, to be snatched off by a stranger, without alliance or fortune, or rather sunk by him, into a state of most wearing, anxious, youth-killing dependence. It must not be, if by any fair interference of friendship, any representations from one who had almost a mother's love and mother's rights, it would be prevented. Captain Wentworth had no fortune. He had been lucky in his profession of the Navy, but spending freely what had come freely had realized nothing. But he was confident that he should soon be rich. Full of life and ardor, he knew that he would soon have a ship and soon be on a station that would lead him to everything he wanted. He had always been lucky. He knew he should be so still. Such confidence, powerful in its own warmth and bewitching the wit which often expressed it, must have been enough for Anne. But Lady Russell saw it very differently. His sanguine temper and fearlessness of mind operated very differently on her. She saw it as but an aggravation of the evil. It only added a dangerous character to himself. He was brilliant. He was headstrong. Lady Russell had little taste for wit and of anything approaching to imprudence a horror. She deprecated the connection in every light. 
Such opposition as these feelings produced was more than Anne could combat. Young and gentle as she was, it might have yet been possible to withstand her father's ill will, though unsoftened by one kind word or look on the part of her sister. But Lady Russell, whom she had always loved and relied on, could not, with such steadiness of opinion and such tenderness of manner, be continually advising her in vain. She was persuaded to believe the engagement a wrong thing, indiscreet, improper, hardly capable of success, and not deserving it. But it was not a merely selfish caution under which she acted in putting an end to it. Had she not imagined herself consulting his good even more than her own, she could have never given him up. The the belief of being prudent and self-denying principally for his advantage was her chief consolation. Under the misery of a parting, a final parting, and every consolation was required for she had to encounter all the additional pain of his opinions, totally unconvinced and unbending, and of his feeling himself ill-used by so forced a relinquishment. He had left the country in consequence. A few months had seen the beginning and the end of their acquaintance, but not with a few months ended Anne's share of suffering from it. Her attachment and regret had for a long time clouded every enjoyment of youth, and an early loss of bloom and spirits bloom and spirits had been a lasting effect. More than seven years were gone since its little history of sorrowful interest had reached its close, and time had softened down much, perhaps all, of a peculiar interest in him. But she had been too dependent on time alone. No aid had been given in change of place or in any novelty or enlargement of society. No one had ever come within the Kellynch circle who could bear a comparison with Captain Frederick Wentworth as he stood in her memory. <clears throat> and she thinks a little bit about the situation, and she's thinking about him coming to the house um, and the woman that she is now. But Anne, at 7 and 20, thought very differently from what she had been made to think at 19. She did not blame Lady Russell. She did not blame herself for having been guided by her. But she felt that were any young person in similar circumstances to apply to her for counsel, they would never receive any of such certain immediate wretchedness, such uncertain future good. She was persuaded that under every disadvantage of disapprobation at home and every anxiety attending his profession, all their probable fears, delays, and disappointments, she should have yet have been a happier woman in maintaining the engagement that she had been in the sacrifice of it. And this, she fully believed, had the usual share, had even more than the usual share of all such solicitudes and suspense been theirs, without reference to the actual results of their case, which, as it happened, would have bestowed earlier prosperity than could be reasonably calculated on. All his expectations, all his confidence had been justified. His genius and ardor had seemed to foresee and to command his prosperous path. He had very soon, after their engagement ceased, to gain employ, and all that he had told her that would follow had taken place. He had distinguished himself and early gained the other step in rank, and must now, by successive captures, have made a handsome fortune. She had only the Navy list and newspapers for authority, but she could not doubt his being rich, and in favor of his constancy, she had no reason to believe him married. How eloquent could Anne Elliot have been, how eloquent at least, were her wishes on the side of early, warm attachment and a cheerful confidence in futurity, against the over-anxious caution which seemed to insult exertion and distrust providence. She had been forced in her youth, excuse me, she had been forced into prudence in her youth. She had learned romance as she grew older, the natural sequence of an unnatural beginning. And I want to read a little bit about what Frederick thinks when he comes back (laughs) to her life. She's thinking about him and what it might be like to meet up with him again. And Frederick does come back into the neighborhood. They see each other for the first time. Um... 
he, her sister Mary asks, what, what, what did you think of, of Anne? You haven't seen her in a long time. And he told her sister that she was so altered that he should not have known her again. And if you can imagine, as a woman who's been thinking about this guy for seven years or more, <laughs> that he said, she's so altered I wouldn't have known her again. Um, that gave her a lot to think about. Um, he had used such words. Frederick Wentworth had used such words, or something like them, but without an idea that they would ever be carried around to her. He had thought her wretchedly altered, and in the first moment of appeal had spoken as he felt. He had not forgiven Anne Elliot. She had used him ill, deserted and disappointed him, and worse, she had shown a feebleness of character in doing so, which his own decided, confident temper could not endure. She had given him up to oblige others. It had been the effect of over-persuasion. It had been weakness and timidity. He had been most warmly attached to her and had never seen a woman since whom he thought her equal. But, except from what, uh, some natural sensation of curiosity, he had no desire of meeting her again. Her power with him was gone forever. Oh, well, I won't read the rest. I, I was talking to Melanie earlier, and I was going to read near the end of the novel, but I don't want to give it away. But so... <laughs> Oh, well, well, no, read and find. This is a Jane Austen book. It's not going to end in a bad way. <laughs> so read and find out. And plus, I can't do justice to the letter. If any of you know, if you know persuasion, <laughs> the letter at the end is one of the most beautiful things, I think, you know, most romantic things. So you need to read persuasion. But I, we have one more um, reading. Katie came to join us, Katie Colborn. And um, she and Teresa have, have have a really cool idea, I think. Okay, so I'm Mr. Darcy. <laughs> and I'm Elizabeth. Okay, just so we get that straight. Miss um, Elizabeth, I have struggled in vain and can bear it no longer. These past months have been a torment. I came to Rosings only to see you. I have fought against judgment, my family's expectations, the inferiority of your birth, my rank. I will put them aside and ask you to end my agony. I don't understand. I love you, most ardently. Please do me the honor of accepting my hand. Sir, I appreciate the struggle you have been through, and I'm very sorry to have caused you pain. It was unconsciously done. Is this your reply? Yes, sir. Are you laughing at me? No. Are you rejecting me? I'm sure the feelings which hindered your regard will help you overcome it. Might I ask, with so little civility, I am thus repulsed. I might inquire why you told me you liked me against your better judgment. If I was uncivil, then that is some excuse. But you know I have other reasons. What reasons? Do you think anyone, anything might tempt me to accept the man who has ruined the happiness of a most beloved sister? Do you deny that you separated a young couple who loved each other, exposing your friend to censure for caprice, and my sister to derision for disappointed hopes, involving them both in acute misery? I do not deny it. How could you do it? I believed your sister indifferent to him. I realized his attachment was deeper than hers. She's shy. Bingley was persuaded she didn't feel strongly. You suggested it. For his own good. My sister hardly shows her true feelings to me. I suppose his fortune had some bearing. I wouldn't do your sister the, the dishonor. It was suggested. What was? It was clear an advantageous marriage. Did my sister give that impression? No, no. There was, however, your family. Our want of connection? No, it was more than that. How, sir? The lack of propriety shown by your mother, younger sisters, and your father. Forgive me, you and your sister, I must exclude from this. And what about Mr. Wickham? Mr. Wickham? What excuse can you give for your behavior? You take an eager interest. He told me of his misfortunes. Oh, they have been great. You ruin his chances, yet treat him with sarcasm. 
So this is your opinion of me. Thank you. Perhaps these, dif- these offenses might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by my scruples about our relationship. I am to rejoice in the inferiority of your circumstances. And those are the words of a gentleman. Your, your arrogance and conceit, your selfish disdain for the feelings of others, made me realize you were the last man in this world I could ever marry. Forgive me, madam, for taking up so much of your time. <sighs> and then we um, have the book version, little premise. So you're the pink and I'm the blue. Okay. <laughs> she was suddenly roused by the sound of the doorbell, and her spirits were a little fluttered by the idea of its being Colonel Fitzwilliam himself, who had once called before late in the evening, and might now come to inquire particularly after her. But this idea was soon vanished, and her spirits were very were dif- very differently affected when, to her utter amazement, she saw Mr. Darcy walk into the room. In a hurried manner, he immediately began an inquiry after her health, imputing his visit to a wish of hearing that she were better. She answered him with cold civility. He sat down for a few moments, and then getting up, walked about the room. Elizabeth was surprised, but said not a word. After a silence of several minutes, he came toward her in an agitated manner, and thus began. In vain I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. In such cases as this, it is, I believe, the established mode to express a sense of obligation for the sentiments avowed. However, unequally, they may be returned. It is natural that obligation should be felt. And if I could feel gratitude, I would now thank you. But I cannot. I have never desired your good opinion, and you have certainly bestowed it most unwillingly. I am sorry to have occasioned pain to anyone. It has been most unconsciously done. However, I hope it will be of short duration. The feelings which, you can tell me, have long prevented the acknowledgement of your regard can have little difficulty in overcoming it after this explanation. And this is all the reply which I am to have the honor of expecting? I might perhaps wish to be informed why, with so little endeavor at civility, I am thus rejected, but it is of small importance. I might as well inquire, replied she, why with so evident a design of offending and insulting me, you choose to tell me that you liked me against your will, against your reason, and even against your character. Was this not some excuse for incivility if I was uncivil? But I have other provocations. You know I have. Had not my own feelings decided against you, had not they been indifferent, or had not, or had they even been favorable, do you think that any consideration would tempt me to accept the man who has been the means of ruining, perhaps forever, the happiness of a most beloved sister? I have every reason in the world to think ill of you. No motive can excuse the unjust and ungenerous part you acted there. You dare not, you, can deny, you cannot deny that you have been the principal, if not the only means of dividing them from each other, of exposing one to the censure of the world for caprice and instability, and the other to its derision for disappointed hopes, and involving them both in misery of the acutest kind. Can you deny that you have done it? I have no wish of denying that I did everything in my power to separate my friend from your sister, or that I rejoiced in my success. Towards him, I have been kinder than towards myself. But it is not merely this affair on which my dislike is founded. Long before it had taken place, my opinion of you was decided. Your character was unfolded in the recital which I received many months ago from Mr. Wickham. On this subject, what can you have to say? In what imaginary art of friendship can you defend yourself? Or under what misrepresentation can you impose here upon others? 
You take an eager interest in that gentleman's concern. Who that knows what his misfortunes have been can help feeling an interest in him. His misfortunes, yes, his misfortunes have been great indeed. And of your affliction, you have reduced him to his present state of poverty, comparative poverty. You have withheld the advantages which you know to have been designed for him. You have deprived the best years of his life of that independence which was no less his due than his desert. You have done all this, and yet you treat the mention of his misfortunes with contempt and ridicule. And this. Is your opinion of me? This is the estimation in which you hold me? I thank you for explaining it so fully. My faults, according to this calculation, are heavy indeed. But perhaps these offenses might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by my honest confession of the scruples that had long prevented my forming any serious design. These bitter accusations might have been suppressed had I with greater policy concealed my struggles and flattered you into the belief of my being impelled by unqualified, unalloyed inclination, by by reason, by reflection, by everything. But disguise of every sort is my abhorrence, nor am I ashamed of the feelings I related. They were natural and just. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connection, to congratulate myself on the hope of relations, whose condition in life is so decidedly beneath my own? You are mistaken, Mr. Darcy, if you suppose that the mode of your declaration affected me in any other way than as it spared me the concern which I might have felt in refusing you, and had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner. You could not have made me the offer of your hand in any possible way that would have tempted me to accept it. From the very beginning, from the first moment, I may almost say, of my acquaintance with you, your manners impressing me with the fullest belief of your arrogance, your conceit, and your selfish disdain of the feelings of others were such as to form that groundwork of disappropriation on which succeeding events have built so immovable a dislike, and I had not known you a month before I felt that you were the last man in the world whom I could ever be prevailed on to marry." You have said quite enough, madam. I perfectly comprehend your feelings and have now only to be ashamed of what my own have been. Forgive me for having taken up so much of your time and accept my best wishes for your health and happiness. (laughs) I know, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of the lines taken out of it. Yeah, I just kind of condensed it into like, (laughs) just pulled on your heartstrings a little bit. (laughs) It's pretty hardcore. Thank you very much, ladies, for coming. We appreciate it. And um, thanks for having us. Hope everyone <laughs> enjoyed it. Go out and read Jane Austen. <laughs> <laughs>